So good to be with you guys and, and welcome. A few more things uh, and in terms of announcements, after service uh, today, after both services, we're having a connection coffee. So if you're newer, we just have a very informal time. We, we have coffee, we hang out, and we just talk and introduce ourselves. So if you're newer and would like to meet myself, some of the other pastors and staff, uh, please join us back there for coffee and some cookies and things like that after the service. And also, yeah, um, I am going on sabbatical and so thankful for that. Leaving after next Sunday, it's not like literally, but uh, cl- pretty close. Monday morning, I will be uh, leaving town. And so grateful to have um, the help that we're going to have while I'm gone. The first month of May, or that, not the first, the first month, comma, in May, uh, we're going to have Ricardo Stewart from Redemption Tempe preaching. Ricardo's one of my good friends. I mentioned in the, the, the little blurb there that he is a Sun Devil great. He is a football player, but then Tyler Johnson the next week, also from Redemption Church, is preaching. Tyler and I have been very close friends since um, literally the first month that I moved here, Uh, and uh, he also, I didn't put this on the the sheet, but he also is a Sun Devil great. He played baseball, and I I didn't put that in there. I know I'm going to hear about it, so (laughs) I just had to say. And then Bob Smart, um, who is uh, a pastor in Illinois and an amazing man. He's a theologian. He's an author. He spoke at our men's retreat last year, did a phenomenal job. He's going to be preaching two weeks, and his preaching for many of us was so life-changing at the men's retreat. So the four Sundays of May are just going to be so great, and uh, I hope each one of you can be a part of that. If you have a Bible, would you please turn to Galatians 5? We're going to look at verses uh, 25 through chapter 6, verse 5, together this morning. It'll be found in your bulletin, and it's also on the screen as well. I've really been enjoying Galatians. This is our second to last week. I hope you have too, if, if you have been here throughout the series. I, I have been reinvigorated in so many different ways, but uh, let's look at verse 25 of chapter 5 through chapter 6, verse 5, where the Apostle Paul writes this. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Another point here, he says, keep in step with the Spirit, the same idea of of walking with the Spirit. And just in the previous week, we read about how he is juxtaposing two things where you can be controlled by the flesh, which is not your physical body, but which is the inward bent that we have towards selfishness. And we are going to go back to reading the passage. But like uh, this inward bent towards selfishness, and that produces certain things in your life. The flesh has a fruit that it produces, which is all kinds of sin and evil. But the Holy Spirit produces another fruit that is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and so forth. And then today he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. This is the word of the Lord. Such great news that the gospel of Jesus plus nothing else at all, and this is what we've been studying 
in Galatians is this. The good news about Jesus is this, that when you put your hope or faith in him, you are made right with God. And Paul has been fighting for this pure gospel, this pure good news about Jesus with the Galatians and saying, don't add anything else at all to this good news. Don't add your own righteousness, your church attendance, your, your religion. Don't add anything. It is Jesus plus nothing. But then he tells us in Galatians 5 that that gospel will inevitably produce a certain type of person, fruit. And that it changes all of our relationships. And if you think about it, to have character change love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, that absolutely is in relationship to another human being and to God himself, right? I mean, what does it mean to have these character qualities inside if it's not being acted out in love towards other people? And so for just a second, just to make you feel very uncomfortable, uh, look to the person on your right just for a second, okay? And now to the person on your left, across the aisle, whatever. The gospel should change your relationship with that person. Maybe you, maybe you don't know anybody to the right or your left. It doesn't really matter. Like even, even today, this morning, the way you're looking at them and, and choosing to think what's good about them or best about them, it, 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 the gospel should change us. And I want you to think now in your mind like about the person that you love the most in your life. It's probably, maybe it's more than one person. I'll, I'll give you that, but. The person you love the most, the gospel should change your relationship with that person. Of course. And now I want you to think about the person that you most struggle to love, the person that is most difficult for you to love, and you know where I'm going with this, right? The gospel should change your relationship to that person. The gospel should change your relationship to that person. This morning, as we track along with what Paul is saying, we're gonna see three things. We're gonna talk about gospel self-image. We're gonna talk about gospel confrontation and gospel care, our self-image, confrontation, and care. Gospel self-image. Paul says this in 25 through 26 of chapter five. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So because I have faith in Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, Paul's been telling me and you that I am forgiven, that I am justified, that I am counted righteous before God, and I'm made right with him in light of that reality, as we've been saying this morning, it should mean that we treat people differently. And so Paul says, let us keep then in step with the Spirit. And you get the sense that there's discord going on with these churches in Galatia. And we know that's true. They're fighting over what is the actual gospel. And he warns them, if you can consume one another, what, what will you have left? And he says, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And that means three things. Not being conceited. It's exactly what he says, not provoking one another and not envying one another. Not being conceited. 
And I saw some irony in this as I was reading through my sermon this morning, like, because I'm going to ask you this question. Who is the most conceited person you know? That's kind of a conceited question to ask, right? I mean, it's probably, it's probably you. It's probably me, right? Who is the most conceited person that you know or that you know about, and what is true about them? If you could, like, extrapolate some ideas about them, what are they like? And there is a counterintuitive thing about the most conceited person that you know or you know about in culture. I'm telling you, it's true. There's a counterintuitive thing. You would think that person would be the most secure person you know, but it's quite the opposite. It's quite the opposite. The Greek word for conceit is vain glory or empty of honor. Empty of honor. What it means is it's like the conceited person has this hole or vacuum in their heart where they want honor, but they don't have any sense of honor. Their self-worth is absolutely horrible. And so they go out into the world looking for vain glory, not real glory, not honor, not service or love of other people or true character. They look for vain glory and they are empty of honor. And so they go into the world trying to fill up their life proving their worth to themselves and to other people. The most conceited person you probably know is probably the most insecure person you've ever met. Provoke, do not provoke one another. And this word is like a competition. It's like challenging someone to a contest because you feel superior. You probably really don't, but you think that about yourself. The conceited person, right, is filled with deep insecurity and then goes out in the world filled with conceit and superiority over other people. And that person provokes others, picks at them. And then there's envy, which is sort of the opposite. It's it means to want something that somebody uh, belongs to somebody else, but it's sort of an inferiority complex, isn't it? Oh, I wish I had, I wish I had her hair. I wish I had his money. I wish I had his hair. I wish I had, you know, uh, it, it's like this, this inferiority thing that goes out in the world constantly envying. Oh, I just wish I had what other people had. And Tim Keller writes in Galatians for You, uh, which is a book that we've been tracking along with us in this series. He says, so Paul is saying that both superiority and inferiority are a form of conceit. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Both the superior and the inferior person are self-absorbed. In both cases, you're focusing heavily on how the other person makes you look and feel instead of how you make him or her look and feel. Both the superior and the inferior person are trying to gain worth through competition at the expense of others. Both want to gain an identity by beating and surpassing other people. But look at this this morning. The gospel keeps us from both conceit and self-loathing. Because the gospel makes you truly humble. It, it, when you really get that Jesus is my identity, I don't have to prove anything to you because I have the worth of the one person, God himself, if I have him saying to me, you're worthy, you're my child, I lived my life for you, I died my death for you, if, if I have his voice speaking into my life that says, my son, my daughter, Ultimately, I love having your acceptance. I love, of course, but I don't need it. And so the truly secure person in the gospel is freed up and freed from conceit because the truly 
gospel-centered person can walk into this room and, and like Pastor Tyson leads us almost every week in saying, I am free to even go to those most dark places about my heart because again, I'm freed up, I'm accepted in Jesus. I can be truly humble on the one hand, so I'm not conceited, but I don't have to fall into self-loathing either. When we come to confess our sins every week, please hear us, this is not self-loathing time, this is honesty time. It's, not, it's honesty time, and it's different than self-loathing. It's, it's not self-hatred, because true humility is not just beating yourself up. It's not thinking less of yourself. It is about lifting others up. The truly humbled person just quits thinking about himself or herself as much because they're not running themselves down, which is another form of conceit if you think about it. They're lifting others up to the extent that they're not thinking about themselves as much. It's not that they're not caring for their basic necessities. It's just they're focused on loving and serving. So look what the gospel does. It creates humility in the bold person. And it creates, it creates boldness in the timid person. For the, for the, the bold person, the confident person, the, the person that just thinks, I've really got it going on and I'm driven and I, and I need to succeed, to, the gospel says to that person, but you should be humbled because Jesus had to die for you. It's that bad. Like You're a broken, fallen sinner and, and you've been humbled by the gospel, but for the timid person, the weak person, the person that's constantly self-loathing and hating on themselves, the gospel comes along and says, no, but you're loved and accepted. You're a child of God. And it creates a boldness in that person. Lately, um, as a staff, we've been working to understand each other better, and, and we already feel like we, we do pretty well, but we've been working to, uh, with some personality tests. How many of you have ever taken a personality test? Wow, okay, cool. I've taken several over the years, and there's different iterations of them, and, and they get different, you know, popular ones at different times. Uh, the Myers-Briggs was really big when I was in graduate school, and so we did that, and I've done the DISC test, and recently we did something called the Enneagram with our staff, and, you know, if you've not heard of that, it's, it's interesting. It's very similar in some ways to these others, but different in others, and, and what I found with each one of these personality tests is this, is that I am a bold person, <laughs> that I have a dominant personality, the DISC test says, that I have, uh, so my point is this, for me, I don't struggle with uh, being timid, I have to like look within myself and say the gospel needs to make me patient, maybe not speak up so much, maybe not confront someone, like the gospel should be working in my life to be less bold in some sense, in my interpersonal relationships with Becky, with my boys, with my staff, with my team. But for the timid person, and, and knowing your personality is really helpful, like are you someone that shies away from confrontation, shies away from making your opinion no? Well, the gospel comes along and says no, but you can be pushed up, you can have confidence more and more and more because the gospel is that good. Most of us tend towards provoking, Paul says, or envying. He says, don't provoke and don't envy. And they're kind of the same problem, but from a different vantage point. It's still conceit. One is looking up saying, ah, I need your approval, and I wish I were like you, and so forth. But not being content with who you are. You're constantly comparing yourself, and the other person is looking down on others. Which do you tend towards? 
Do you blow up or do you clam up? Do you pick a fight or do you run from a fight? Are you judgmental? Are you intimidated and defensive? Well, the gospel is the power to give us confidence and humility both, in both instances. Next, we see Paul talking about confrontation, gospel confrontation. So gospel identity, friends, no matter who you are, no matter what your personality, whether you're a, a one or a nine or a four or whatever, or whether you, you know, on the disc test, you're a D or an I or whatever it is, it, listen, at the end of the day, Jesus Christ must be your identity. And I love how Paul is realistic because even though the gospel should absolutely change our relationships and changes us from the inside out so that we are filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, but I've been working at this a long time. I bet you have too. And and the reality is, though, in my human relationships, there is need for forgiveness and there is need for confrontation. Sometimes we need to speak up. Sometimes we don't. And Paul writes this, chapter 1, 6, verses 1 through 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a gentle uh, spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, though, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So brothers and sisters, Paul says, so brothers, he's saying, we're like a family. You're brothers to me. You're sisters to me. And in any family dynamic, you know there is a realistic aspect to where there is tension, there is brokenness, and there is a need to confront sometime. So when should you speak up? And when should you let it go? And the bold person sometimes probably really needs to evaluate that because we are so quick to speak up, so quick to bring up some issue, right? So the bold person, the person that's so confident, like me, I need to say, like, maybe I need to think through before I say something, does this really need to be said? But the, the timid person might need to say, like, is this a time to confront? Paul says, if anyone is caught in a transgression, this is a time to speak up. If anybody else is caught in a transgression or sin, the time is to speak because caught means overtaken. The issue has become a pattern. It's habitual. And if you love that person, Paul says you will restore them gently. You who are spiritual, you can say, well, I'm really not that spiritual. I'm I'm off the hook. (laughs) Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, Paul says you are spiritual. You have God's Holy Spirit. His Spirit is producing fruit in your life. That's what he's talking about right here. You who are spiritual. It's not because you listen only to Caleb or, or you, you, know, you pray a lot. It's because if you are a follower of Jesus, you have his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the person of God who is working love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and all these attributes into your life. And so this is the person. You who are spiritual should do what? Restore with gentleness. And the word restore is used in in the New Testament, and that Greek word is for setting a bone that has been dislocated back into place. Have you ever seen someone whose shoulder is dislocated and out of joint, and then the process to put that back? It doesn't look gentle. (laughs) Paul says do it with gentleness, but it's kind of like, 
I'm going to hurt you really bad. Are you ready? I love you. <laughs> Crack! Paul says with as much gentleness as you can, but there's going to be pain involved, right? When you confront someone who is caught in a sin or a transgression, it's going to hurt. And so you better come in with humility. And it, Paul would say, look, this is not a competition. It's not about winning. It's about healing. So bold people like myself, why are you bringing it up? <laughs> is it about letting them have it, letting them know their problem, or is it because you actually want to see healing in that person's life? Is it just about punishment, or is it about healing? Because gospel confrontation, according to Paul, in any discipline of any sort among followers of Jesus should have its purpose in what? Restoration and healing. And so I wish it could avoid pain, but it doesn't. But you go in a spirit of gentleness because the goal of all gospel confrontation is healing. Paul has this really interesting comment here. He says, because lest you too may be tempted, be careful. And the way I normally interpret that passage is to mean like, somebody's caught in a sin and if you go to try to help them and you also struggle with that same temptation maybe you get sucked into that same problem next thing you know you're just doing what that person is doing and that absolutely is probably what Paul has in mind but I think there is another subtle way in which there is a temptation here and it's for that bold person perhaps that as you go and you are confronting that you start to judge that person that instead of bearing their burden and loving them, you're tempted, you're sucked in to be a person who has arrogance towards them, that's provoking them, that's looking down on them. I would never fall into a temptation like this. I can't believe you would fall into a temptation like this. You go in instead saying, only by the grace of God have I not fallen into this temptation. So in Jesus, we could go to his passage as well where Jesus says, look, before you go to take the speck, the tiniest little bit of dust out of your brother's eyes, would you look first at the two-by-four that's protruding out of your head, right? And then finally, gospel care. You who are spiritual, you who have the Holy Spirit in your life producing the fruit of the Spirit should care for one another. Verses two through five, Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he is deceiving himself. But let each one test in his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Paul says that if we bear one another's burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Paul has been juxtaposing the law, looking to law keep, keeping as a problem, and now he says, but we are called to fulfill the law of Christ. Back in chapter 5, verse 14, he says this, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Neighbor love, loving your neighbor. Why would Paul call neighbor love the law of Christ? And it's because Paul is saying, look, Jesus alone so beautifully fulfills this law who else has sacrificed like jesus 
this perfect example of self-sacrificing sacrificial love, Paul says, serve one another in love and bear one another's burdens. Tim Keller in Galatians for You says this, these burdens can be a responsibility like raising a child or renovating a space. Bear one another's burdens. Or they can be a difficult problem. You cannot help with the burden unless you become a very, very close to the burdened person. We're to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. And the only way for me often to know if, the, if you have a burden or if you would know about me and my life, if I have a burden, is if you were to be close enough that the person could share that burden or you could observe that burden. We, though, too often want to be self-protective and we kind of wall ourselves off in our own little lives instead of living in such, such community that we would understand what the burden is of somebody in my life. And this, of course, is true in a church community, but also just in our own city. Are you looking around and having ears and eyes to see what the burdens are of people around you? You cannot help with a burden unless you become close enough to the burdened person standing virtually in their shoes and putting your own strength, I love what he says here, under the burden so its weight is distributed on both of you, lightening the load of the other. So when you help with somebody, when you are helping out with a burden, that doesn't mean then now you just have a burden. No, it says like the per that person is underneath this enormous burden, and now you're helping distribute the weight, hopefully not alone, but other people in the community are, and so that this weight is now being equally distributed. So in the same way, a Christian must listen and understand and physically, emotionally, spiritually take up some of the burden with the other person. This is why you need to live in community. In Arizona, I actually think in many respects we do do community well, and in others maybe we don't. Um, in, in my cul-de-sac, for whatever reason, we're really close, and we have been for the 15 years that I've lived there, and there is a, a lightening of one another's burdens, truly. like we, we care for one another in that way. But there's this weird thing, too, in Arizona where I d grew up, we didn't do this. Like, every backyard has a what? A big wall. <laughs> like, where I grew up, like, well, what was back there, you might ask? Like, there was no wall. It was just yard. Maybe a fence, but usually the HOAs there wouldn't allow it. To, it had to be transparent. So you literally would just see, like, oh, hey, what's up? There's, there's my neighbor. Here, like, I have a wall in my backyard, and it's been very, very difficult to get to know people over the wall. People don't generally peek up and go, hey, you know, we just, we don't talk over the wall. But the reality is, if you are someone living alone, and then now you have a crisis in your life where you have a burden, and you're not living in community, you're in a very, very dangerous place. One of the most terrifying things about homelessness is this, is people have gotten themselves in a place where through a number of issues, whether it's mental illness or addiction or so forth, where they've gotten to a place where they're now living so far out of community, right? Maybe by their own choices, whatever, but that's where they find themselves. And, and I challenge you, if you're not living in community and now you come under a burden, it is very difficult for people to know you well enough, to trust you well enough, and to get in your life. And so now is the time. If you're not overly burdened, now is the time to be living in community because here's the reality. I know this. I know this in my heart of hearts. If I have a burden, you will shoulder it. 
because you have. If I have a burden, this church shoulders it. If my wife does, if my family does, I know I will never be left alone because I have a, a community of several hundred people that shoulder that load and help distribute the weight, whether it's like, you know, working on a project in my yard or some enormous burden that I might have emotionally. People shoulder that. But I plead with you, friends, the more you live in community, the more you'll be known. And when you actually have a burden, people who love Jesus will help you shoulder that burden. In verse 3, Paul says, if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. So everyone's called to be a servant. Jesus is our supreme example, and he washes the disciples' feet and says to them, the servant is not greater than the master, and observe me as I wash your feet. We're all called to serve. As Paul closes, though, he says this very interesting thing. Paul says, bear one another's burden, but then he finishes saying, each one of us will have to bear our own load. And it kind of seems like he's contradicting himself here, but the word burden literally means an extremely heavy weight, a ridiculously heavy weight that you're unable to withhold or withstand yourself. But this word load is a different understanding, and it literally means kind of like a backpack. Something that you can carry. Like maybe a, maybe a very big backpack even, or like, a, like when you go camping and you've got this huge pack on your back. But still, something you are able to handle. Paul would say in other places, like, in, in, uh, you know, if you're capable of working, you should work. If you're capable of providing for yourself, you should provide for yourself. Paul says that. That's true godliness. Not only should you provide for yourself, you should provide for the widow and the orphan. And so, like, if you're able to work, Paul says, you should work. But, so Paul's saying, you've got a backpack, Right? You've got stuff that is your responsibility. God has given you a certain personality, certain gifting, certain amount of money, certain amount of time, certain amount of whatever, and that's your load. It's your backpack. You have your family, you've got your responsibilities, you have your job and so forth, that's your load. But Paul also says, but there are times in life where it goes way beyond a load, it gets to the level of burden, and that is when we are called to serve one another. We don't, know, we don't know when that will happen. Paul says, carry your load, your backpack, and then when life becomes too much for another person, you help them carry their, their burden. The main point today is this. The gospel of Jesus changes our relationships with one another. The gospel of Jesus changes our relationships with one another. And when the gospel truly breaks into our lives and our hearts through faith, we, we can't help but say to ourselves, this has to be something that changes the way I relate to you and to you and to you. And so look to the person on your left, <laughs> the person on your right. The gospel, it has to change the way we treat one another, the way we think about one another, the way we care for one another. The person that you love the most and the person you struggle to love the most. It has to change. The gospel has to change the way we relate to that person because the Spirit is producing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, 
How can I look down on some other human being in light of this? Becky is constantly reminding me, unfortunately, and my boys, you don't know what that other person has gone through in life. You don't know what it means to walk in their shoes. You don't know what burden they're under. Quit talking so you know, negatively about them. How can you look down on someone as a good mom? She's reminding, when you don't know, bear their burden instead. How can I think too much of myself in light of this? It required the death of God's son in order to make me right with him. How then can I go out in the world with conceit if I really believe the gospel? How can I think I'm better than anyone else? How can I ignore the needs of others when Jesus has met the infinite debt and need that I have? The gospel changes our relationships. Let's pray.